Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Here we go, the start of a brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's already mid-April, which is, uh, I kind of shake my head, uh, realizing the year is moving along quite this quickly. Uh, we have an awful lot to talk about on the show today. Um, there's a common thread that ties together the first few stories that we're going to discuss, and that's that the rightward tilt of the Georgia Republican Party was on full display uh, both in Washington and across the state of Georgia uh, over the past few days. We're going to talk about that. First, uh, GOP county conventions took place this weekend, and uh, in a number of them, uh, Governor Kemp was censured for refusing to stand up for Donald Trump's insistence that the state was stolen from him in the presidential race. We'll talk about how those conventions turned out. And then Marjorie Taylor Greene is back in the national headlines. She attempted last week to start what she called the America First Caucus, which embraced in the uh, announcement of the group uh, some white supremacist tropes that were so disturbing that Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, joined with Democrats. Well, they did it separately, but McCarthy and many Democrats uh, blasted Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she dropped her plan to start the caucus. We're going to talk about those stories and a lot more with our panel. Uh, It's Monday, which means that Jim Galloway, former AJC columnist, is with us. Jim, thanks for being here today. You and I, we have a panel of professors. You and I are the only non-professors in the group, and we're probably the least educated of everybody else who's on the show today. Yeah, yeah, I am feeling a little uneducated today. Well, I don't think you're you're undereducated as I am, but <laughs> anyhow, thank you for being with us. Uh, professor Andre Gillespie, Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University is with us. I'm going to ask all of you, uh, Andra, are you getting down to the end of the semester? Where are you? He- are you heading toward a summer off? Uh, I don't know what summers off are. Um, I okay. never did. <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, in a few weeks, I don't have to teach anymore. Okay. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. At least we're also joined by Professor Amy Steigerwald, who is, of course, a professor of political science at Georgia State University. Amy, your semester coming to an end. It is. And as Andra said, summers are also known for us as uninterrupted work time, where we get done all the things that we're really supposed to be doing and what allows us to keep our jobs. So uh, you get to do some research. Okay. Professor Karen Owen, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia, you're probably finishing up, but you're still working on at least a chapter of, of a book that you're contributing to. Isn't that right? Have I got that right, Karen? Yes, so I am wrapping up the semester teaching, and I will spend probably about a week in May revising that book chapter, working on the research, but then I jump right back in, and I'm teaching a May-mester course for our Mm. graduate students, so helping them learn a little bit more about leadership in the public sector. 
And and your work and the and the book that you've been contributing to, or you're working on to contribute to. It's presidential swing states, and so I'm writing the chapter on Georgia. Okay, terrific, Jim Galloway. Let's get right to what happened over the weekend when uh, county GOP conventions were held, preparing the way for the state convention, uh, electing delegates to go to the state convention, dealing with uh, whatever business each county. Uh, organization had. And we know, Jim, that even though Governor Kemp seems to have won back some favor of some Republicans when he uh, blasted the Major League Baseball decision to pull out of Atlanta, when he went after the Georgia businesses that condemned the new election law, he's still facing some, some rocky times. At least a dozen county GOP organizations voted to uh, censure him for not supporting President Trump's presidential uh, uh, bid. Yeah, yeah, the number was actually 10. Uh, okay. Uh, a, a couple, of, but there was, uh, but, but there were a couple near misses as well. For instance, in, fa- in, in the, fa- at the Fannin County Convention, uh, there was a resolution uh, 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 criticizing, of, of censure uh, proposed, but uh, uh, it came toward uh, the end of the uh, end of the uh, end of the day, and uh, they lacked a quorum to to pass it. Uh, and and in Hall County, you had a you, they, they they did not censure Trump, but they did censure Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, and Jeff Duncan, the Lieutenant Governor, both of them who both of whom in December pushed back very very hard on. On, on the trope that uh, that Donald Trump had actually won the state of Georgia, so it was it was uh, it was you had uh, it, it was it was a declaration of assertion I think a, an assertion of power by by the Trump faction within within the within the Georgia GOP. Uh, in addition to this, for instance, in in Fulton County, you had some very very stalwart. Uh, uh, representative uh, Republicans, Karen Handel, Tom Price, uh, Betty Price, up in all, all up in North Fulton, who were denied spots uh, on 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 the de- uh, in the delegations to the Georgia convention that'll be held later this spring. So it was it was it it, it, it's, it, it reminded me of of the the spasms that the party has gone through first with uh, first with the uh, uh, the Pat Robertson. Uh, uh, the rise of Pat Robertson and conservative Christians in in the in the late eighties and early nineties, and then with the Tea Party, uh, uh, in t- uh, beginning in two thousand nine. When um, you know, I'm curious what you think, uh, Andra, uh, and then I'd love everybody to weigh in on this. When you start getting rid of people or or start denying slots on the convention uh, uh, as delegates to people like Tom and and Betty Price. And Karen Handel have been loyal Republicans for many, many years. You're starting to approach what feels like a um, a, a, a purity purge of people who you're not sure are really quite with you. Well, yeah. Um, it, before you said purge, that was what uh, was coming into my mind. But it also represents uh, that the party is definitely going in a different direction. Um, and that the establishment is the underdog, basically, at this particular point. Um, you know, we'll have to wait and see what the ultimate outcome of this is. I mean, if this purge uh, within the Republican Party doesn't uh, benefit 
Georgia Republicans electorally, I think that there will be cause for coming back and and, and revisiting these particular questions. Uh, And I think the other question is for those who now feel marginalized within the Republican orbit, uh, how do they respond? So, you know, I'm not suggesting that they become Democrats by any stretch of the imagination, but if you keep on apologizing and making excuses for uh, behavior that perhaps you disagree with or perhaps that you would argue needs to be tempered for both strategic and sometimes ethical reasons um, or moral or normative reasons, uh, then that actually says a lot about whether or not, you know, uh, says something about your leadership and whether or not you would actually be uh, sort of the person or the group who should actually be in charge of helping to remake uh, the the Republican Party after the Trump moment has passed. Uh, Karen and then Amy, I'd like to get both of you on this. Karen? So I think Andre's point there at the very end is very important, and it's about the leadership on the side or faction within the Republican Party of the moderate or establishment. And they have to, in many ways, Find that leader who can step up and push a message that will counter some of this Trump still supporting if the party wants to continue to have a a different conversation uh, to the Democrats and continue. But I think the other piece here is I think we see that within the county GOPs of Georgia, that Trump loyal piece is really truly activism that showed up this time. And those groups that, or individuals that probably are part of that old guard establishment aren't getting as engaged right now. It's almost as if they don't know how to be a part and message. And I think they have to come to a decision of what they want to say and then really vocalize that and then re-energize. I think this will be a test for maybe Lieutenant Governor Duncan, what his message will be with this is a GP, uh, GOP 2.0, and is he going to be able to really broaden that out and get some of these more moderate or older established Republicans back in and following him? Amy? No, the thoughts I were having were actually completely going off of what Karen was just saying, is that I was thinking about sort of the lieutenant governor, but also on the other side, the fact that the decision that he made, right, he had sort of made this push that we needed a GOP 2.0 to we've heard this call sort of a lot of broadening the tent once again. I think there's a very good argument that a lot of people um, did not as feel as though in the last election that there was a lot of room for uh, diversity or diversity of opinions even within the Republican Party. And that either led to people staying home or potentially even, uh, for example, voting for uh, now President Biden as opposed to Trump. Um, that that was really something I think that hurt, uh, for example, Kelly Leffler in her race and potentially Purdue in the runoff. And with the lieutenant governor, what I thought was most striking is the decision to not run for reelection, right, to sort of feel that his argument that he's trying to make of this broader push was likely going to fail. And so I think that he now wants to sort of see if he can do some, you know, outside the electoral arena, perhaps helping others. But at the same time, it is really this interesting thought, especially as we see it with what's happened at the various uh, GOP conventions, that there's a real pushing out of non-Trump support and where that is going to go and whether or not there's going to be room for those that might have a different way of viewing it. Yeah, uh, Bill. These 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 meetings that uh, that the GOP has, they're all prelude 
to uh, the statewide convention. And that to me is, is, is going to be the, the real tell as to, as to uh, what kind of problems uh, Governor Brian Kemp might have uh, in, in, in the next, say, in, in the next, say, 14 months, because the primaries, uh, the primary will be in, in May of next year. But, but governors, Republican governors have, uh, they've, they've kind of had a, 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 uh, a difficult relationship with uh, the grassroots uh, activists as represented as del- uh, in, in, in the delegates uh, to the state GOP. Uh, 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 both Nathan Deal and Sonny Perdue have occasionally got their their pushback. This may be uh, this may be the largest test of of a gap between between a, a, a sitting governor and the GOP base that I've seen in you know in 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 their twenty years of power. I think that's an important point that we've seen a gap in the past, but that was pre-Trump, and uh, and the Donald Trump. Uh, it, uh, piece of the equation really makes it uh, more dramatic, I think, uh, than ever. Uh, Karen, I'm curious about something. So the DeKalb County GOP seemed to take a really strong uh, turn to the right at their convention this weekend. They elected a Trump chair. Um, And and DeKalb, yet, DeKalb County includes, I'm assuming, and maybe one of you has actual data on this, I don't, but... We're talking about a county that includes Dunwoody, uh, other areas of uh, suburban Atlanta, where you might have imagined that some of those, particularly uh, suburban women, uh, turned toward toward Joe Biden uh, because they were disenchanted with the way Donald Trump was handling the office. So I wonder about the DeKalb County especially, and for that matter, parts of North Fulton County may have had the same phenomenon, Karen. So I think that is interesting that why are counties that are within, especially these congressional districts you're mentioning, that did somewhat swing left or are moving left, pick people to lead the party that are much more right and hardcore right. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting piece of who showed up, who is backing them, what is that activism? And I think it gets to Amy's point are the Republicans willing to broaden the tent? Are they really thinking long-term strategically about how they can win these districts back and the voters they need to reach? Well, Bill, I mean, I think that in a county like DeKalb, it's not about trying to win elections there because that's pretty much a lost cause, like for at least for this particular juncture. This is such a strongly Democratic county. So, um, you know, they weren't making decisions for strategic reasons. Um, They were making them for really sort of important symbolic reasons. And then I think, as Karen said, I think this is also based on who showed up. So if your moderate, you know, Chamber of Commerce, country club type of Republicans didn't show up to the county convention because that's not what they do, then uh, then the types of people who were elected out of this process sort of reflect the people who were, in fact, in the room. So, I mean, it, it goes to show you that turnout matters even when you're talking about about local elections and, and, and local politics. So, Andrew, let me follow up with you on this and then ask Amy to get involved in it, too. So I understand your point that this is about making a statement in a county, like, a county organization like the cabs, but 
isn't it a bit short sighted? Yes, I understand the cab is going to vote Democratic. Um, but in the long run, as you move toward 2022 and 2024, you would like, as a Republican, to win back some of those uh, people in the suburban areas of Metro who were on the fence about being Republicans or Democrats. Yes? Isn't it short-sighted? Um, well, I mean, I think it's short-sighted, and it doesn't reflect what I would consider the best uh, strategies for, for party building, um, you know, in the long run. Uh, but at the, at the same time, uh, these people want to kind of go with what they think is popular, and their notion of party building is uh, if you build it, they'll come. And so there must be more people in this silent majority that think like them. And so if we just plant our flag, then that will attract people. Um, that's probably, I mean, it's not true in DeKalb County. There just are more Democrats than there are Republicans there. Uh, but, you know, the people who were in the room were the true believers. And so they weren't going to make the same types of decisions that I would expect a more moderate or establishment Republican to make. Amy? Um, I think another important part that comes into this is also who it is that these officials are hearing from and who is speaking up most loudly. Because, again, right, if the only people who are really speaking up are those that are in support of President Trump, who are arguing that the reason that the party lost in uh, the runoffs or in November are because they didn't go far enough right and that they're not fighting enough against the kind of progressive, you know, radical um, leftists, then that's also going to be who the sort of leaders right now are going to respond to. And I think some of that becomes this concern that many times, like the people who are angriest are also the ones who are loudest, right? When people are happy, when they think that things are going well, they generally don't speak up, right? We see that with lots of things. And so I think that there is both that, so they're worth responding to. And there's also this question of, to be perfectly blunt, okay, great, people are saying that maybe they think we're going too far to the right. But when it comes down to it, are they actually going to leave the party and vote for the Democrats, or are they going to come back home when the election takes place? And the reality is that for most people, that's also true, right? We don't have the ability in our system, so I'm going to put out something which, right, I recognize that, like, as political scientists, we drive sort of people at home crazy, but Duverger's law. We cannot have a viable third party. And I know that that really upsets people to hear, but we have winner-take-all, first-past-the-post elections. If you win, you win it all, and it doesn't allow third parties to exist. So your choices are Democrat or Republican. And for a lot of people, that means at the end of the day, even if they're not particularly happy with what's going on, they're still going to vote Republican when it comes down to it. Uh, the the problem here is is that Republicans could find themselves in in something of a of, of a of a death spiral. Uh, you have a uh, I think what we're seeing when you when you have a group on the wane that's 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 that that sees its influence in in the political world uh, being reduced. This is not unusual. It's not unusual to see groups demand more and more orthodoxy out of the people who, who follow them. And I think, I, I think we might be able to use a bridge, uh, this kind of this thought to kind of, uh, uh, a bridge over to, to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, because 
because the because the outrageous becomes more more and more normal in these situations mm-hmm. and that's 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 where i think you have a a whole lot of republicans very very nervous um i'm glad you mentioned marjorie taylor green because i do want to turn and talk about her big last few days uh which again reflects the extremities of the republican party right now And we're going to do that, but let's get a break out of the way so we can come back and spend some time on just that subject. You're listening to Political Rewind. (music) Professor Karen Owen, Professor Amy Steigerwald, Professor Andre Gillespie, just plain Jim Galloway, and just me are here again on Political Rewind uh, today. Marjorie Taylor Greene announced last week that she was going to launch what she called the America First Caucus. And um, the language that was used in describing what the caucus was going to be about was incredibly offensive to Republicans and Democrats alike. Let me just give you a few phrases from uh, uh, the, uh, the, the announcement. Uh, the group said, or she, or her staff, she claims this was written by a staff member and she didn't get to clear it, uh, that the caucus would uh, promote, quote, uniquely Anglo-Saxon political traditions and said that societal trust and political unity are threatened when foreign citizens are imported en masse into a country, particularly without institutional support for assimilation and an expansive welfare state, bail them out should they fail to contribute positively to the country. Um, Jim, the uh, outrage was so strong that Green has now backed away from establishing it, probably in part not just because, who knows with Marjorie Taylor Green whether she minds that kind of uh, uh, condemnation, but the Freedom Caucus, <laughs> which is already a powerful force in uh, the House, they were certainly not happy that they might see a competing group. But without regard to that, the language in this, it it emulates every white supremacist trope that Jews like me, that African Americans in this country for so long have watched and been so dismayed by. Uh, there, there's an advantage uh, to growing up in the South in that you you recognize these dog whistles uh, maybe a lot more quickly and a lot more thoroughly than, uh, than, than, than other people, because this language we've, I have been around this language all my life. Uh, and I've, I've, I've seen it in clan rallies. I've, I've seen it in, uh, in, 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 I've heard it in private conversations of people who were trying to, to, to persuade me that they, that they were not white supremacists, uh, but but uh, but merely cultural supremacists, uh, and and it it doesn't sell. It it, it it sold then. I don't think it can sell now. Andra, um, we shouldn't forget that Marjorie Taylor Greene once was quoted as saying, "The most mistreated group of people in the United States today are white males." But what's even more distressing is not only that she's a Georgia congresswoman but that her language is being repeated now regularly by some of the hosts of Fox News television. 
Well, I mean, I think that that one is a little bit of a feedback loop because I don't know sort of like who's coming first there and talking about this. But, I mean, tapping into these ideas of replacement theory, um, you know, sort of it's immigrants uh, and there is a sort of line of this that is anti-Semitic saying that they're being funded by Jewish people who are coming into the United States to take over the white population and have their way politically. Um, In the United States, you know, one is incredibly racist. And then, too, it also evidences a certain uh, fear, uh, fear of a loss of social dominance, fear of a loss of cultural supremacy um, that uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene is tapping into in ways that she learned from Donald Trump in part. Uh, and so what I think, you know, she's hoping by sending, I'm not even sure that these are dog whistles. I mean, that these are kind of more foghorns than anything else um, <laughs> that. You know, she's trying to tap into that, and she is, you know, increasing her fundraising hall, which I know we'll talk about a, a, a little bit later as a result of it. So, you know, doing this is actually good for business for her, um, as terrible as it is for the country and as much leadership as it does not show. Karen, um, I honestly believe there's a difference between um, talking about this in a partisan way. It's one thing to talk in a partisan way about some of the issues that Republicans embrace. And I I get that on this show, we're always careful about balance. But, but this is not about partisan, uh, a partisan view. This is about a dangerous threat to the diversity of how we see the United States. Help us understand what replacement theory, which Tucker Carlson has been promoting for some time now. Just explain, if you would, what is it? Wow, that's throwing a lot at me, I feel like. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, <laughs> I mean, in its most basic form. Well, I think it's the idea, right, that here America was founded by, you know, from the British and Anglo-Saxons and it's being diversified through many different groups coming in. And thus, those who have roots back to this white are being replaced by others and their voices are being lessened. I hope I touched on that enough. But I think you're right. This is beyond just the Republican Party stance of some type, right? She's getting into a territory, speaking of things that are not helpful, they're hurtful. And it doesn't move the dialogue that we need to have in America about the issues that are facing America forward. It is about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is in the line of the Trump world, just wanting attention, right? And we as political scientists know that members of Congress, legislators, their goal is re-election. And so much of what she's doing is to grab attention, one like Andrea said, we'll talk about later, which is to fundraise keep her voters knowing she's talking about issues, she's working, and she wants to get reelected, and to stop someone from probably challenging her in the primary so she can then keep focusing. And I know we'll probably talk about this, too, and this is moving on, but, like, the Cook Political Report Index, her district is 28 points more Republican than the national average. She is in a really right leaning district and she's speaking to them but it does not help the party nationally and it does not help the gop in georgia so amy here's way here's how tucker carlson in just a few sentences talks about uh about uh 
replacement theory. He doesn't call it that, of course, but it's a white nationalist trope that he's espousing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he says that the Democratic Party is trying to, quote, replace the current electorate with, quote, voters from the third world. It was language like that which led the Anti-Defamation League to uh, call for his being fired from Fox News. Yes, and it's an interesting choice in the sense that it also doesn't really match up with political reality, right? So, for example, there are, right, if one wanted to be very crass about it, right, quite a number of immigrants who have come from sort of third world countries, right, or from Cuba, et cetera, into, I don't know, states like Florida, which is not exactly known as a bastion of Democrats. Right. I mean, this idea, in fact, that right. In fact, in fact, that's actually where the largest swing towards Trump happened was with Latino voters. And so there is also this mismatch that it is very much a sort of racist foghorn, as Andra said, that doesn't also match up with the sort of historical reality of where uh, the votes are coming from and has a real issue of potentially you know, harming going forward. Um, sort of also go back to a point that Karen was bringing up. Here's the other thought of it, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene is, right, number one, trying for re-election. She's trying to raise money to buttress and show she has support. She's also trying to fend off what might happen in redistricting, right? Because one potential thing that could happen is that the 14th district gets redrawn in a way to try to lessen actually the support that she's able to give in. And there's a lot of people that, or that she's able to get, that a lot of people have talked about. And so one thing she's also trying to do is say, you don't want to do that because of the possible backlash, right? Look how many people support me. But it is more broadly, right? To see where that is going to go, what types of choices are gonna be made in redistricting and how what decisions are gonna be made about how the party wants to sort of address these issues more broadly and whether or not they really want to be hearkening back to the America First Committee from 1940, which was very explicitly uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, right, et cetera, or if they want to be putting forth, right, sort of another version that recognizes that, yes, we are an incredibly diverse country. We are, we've always talked about being a melting pot and that's not going to end. Right. That's not going away. We're not going to become an all white Anglo-Saxon country unless there's like mass riots and genocide. Um, so there might possibly need to be another policy uh, strategy that's looked into. Uh, you know, uh, Bill, it, what's what's interesting is is how well this fits into uh, uh, John Boehner's new book. Uh, about uh, the, the 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 former the former speaker of the House of Republican, uh, and 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 how he has come to realize that there are members that there were how he came to realize that there were members of the Republican caucus that simply weren't interested in legislation, they weren't interested in changing society, they were interested in tapping the uh, the the kind of the 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 conservative uh, media. Uh, platform in order to gain in, uh, influence and money and 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 and, and cash, uh, and, and the other part of this is uh, that that very very quick uh, pushback from uh, uh, Kevin McCartney. Uh, uh, he's a congressman from California. This man is only four or five congressional seats from being the next speech speaker of the House. And somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene pushing those ideas, 
she's an obstacle to him now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andra? So I started reading Vayner's book last night, so I haven't gotten far enough in it. But I, I you know, also saw him on the talk show circuit yesterday. And the thing about Kevin McCarthy stepping up in this case, and I'm glad that he did, but this was obvious. This was a no-brainer that you shoot this down. And I think that this is an example of what leadership looks like. If leadership would sit and kind of discipline and train their members that, yeah, no, you can't do this. Uh, we will penalize you if you do this. Like, what if Kevin McCarthy had stripped Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments as opposed to the entire, like, the Democrats basically doing it, right? But because McCarthy sees that he's only a handful of seats away, he's like, and it's, it's, what, it's what Boehner said, right? I, you know, I got to get 218 votes. It's like, you know what? In the long run, sometimes the test of true leadership is whether or not you're actually willing to give up short-term political gains for a long-term future. And that's the yeah. problem that they refuse. Yesterday on CNN, Boehner was somewhat reluctant sometimes to completely call a spade a spade. It's obvious that he doesn't agree with Trump, but he's still kind of hemmed and hot about whether or not he would vote for Trump if he were the Republican nominee in 2024. Sooner or later, you got to say, no, I can't vote for him. Doesn't mean I'm voting for the Democrat, but I'm not voting for this foolishness because this is going to imperil my party long-term. And they're not willing to take that step and because of that, they, one, risk their longevity overall, and they are certainly tarnishing their record and their perception as leaders um, in, the, in the short term. And, Andra, just to amplify what you said, Boehner has acknowledged on a couple of the interviews he's done that he did vote for Trump in the 2020 election. So that's fascinating, too. Karen, you mentioned the fundraising. Marjorie Taylor Greene, in the first three months of 2021, the first reporting period, raised $3.2 million, making her, I think, next to Nancy Pelosi, the top fundraising member of the U.S. House. And let me just very quickly say, um, I thought in the AJC piece on this, they did a really nice uh, job. Tia Mitchell was the lead reporter on this. Uh, she pointed out just one example. There was a, a man in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, a real estate developer, who... Um, gave her um, $100 on the day that the House Rules Committee stripped her of her congressional committees, gave her another $100 on the day after Green moved to adjourn the House to avoid voting on legislation protecting LGBTQ people from discrimination, gave more money each step of the way. In other words, she was rewarded by this one small donor uh, for the dramatic actions that she took and clearly uh, many, many others contributing to that $3 million-plus total were doing the same thing. Yes, and we see here that Marjorie Taylor Greene is raising in the small-dollar amount. She is actually getting a lot of donors in these small figures from, you know, under $250 or whatever. And you're right. She's making statements, and then that becomes a rally cry to go out and fundraise on, and then people support her back for that. You know, interesting comparison, I think I read, too, that she raised this $3 million in the first quarter. And if we look back at 2019, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did not raise even a million. She raised around 750000 or something like that. And she's kind of, you know, on the left, been a very vocal uh, person on different things. And yet we see Marjorie Taylor Greene has outraised her, which is quite shocking. But if we look at Georgia, too, 
I noticed that um, Raphael Warnock did an excellent job in the first quarter of raising money. Yes. And again, you know, he's in a quick turnaround race of two years, so he's got to raise quickly to put up um, his campaign efforts. But it is amazing, I think, for those of us who are looking at campaigns, that money is being generated now on the right, less from corporations in this last kind of few months and more from individual donors, which had been a really big thing of the left in the last few election cycles. Um, Amy Galloway made a great point. Uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and there are clearly other examples in the House, and, and they tend to be on the Republican side, uh, have come to Washington with more interest in developing a communication staff that can get them on on various cable channels, particularly Fox News, than in actually doing the hard work of legislating. And that, res- and in that respect, I'm certainly not alone in pointing out that in many ways, Democrats in the House may have done Marjorie Taylor Greene a favor by stripping her of her committee assignments so she could spend all her time uh, just talking to uh, the to the country uh, in in the ways that she wants to. Yes, I mean, as Karen said, it's about re-election, right? And what's the best way that you can do re-election is that you can position take and credit claim. And so she is very clearly position taking and she's credit claiming for the sense of getting people activated, right? Of showing that she's following through, right? It may not result in legislative victories, but the really sad truth is that studies continually show people don't pay attention to what actually gets done policy-wise. People give much more credit to legislators for the positions that they take, for the statements that they make, for uh, potential constituent services. And basically, no one actually gets any type of re-electoral benefit from having passed legislation. It really doesn't matter if you put legislation out, and it certainly doesn't matter if you get it enacted into law. And so she is really capitalizing that, right? We sort of see a similar thing with uh, Madison Cawthorn out of North Carolina, who similarly has, you know, been very clear that he's hired a lot of communication staff and not really legislative staff. And I mean, one one could argue as a political scientist who actually cares about policy that this is a bad thing. But if what you care about is re-election and getting back into office and fundraising, then it can pay off in spades. And the question I think now is going to become, though, what does she do with these funds, right? So one thing that's also interesting is that, right, Marjorie, Representative Marjorie Tilly Green has taken in a lot of money, and she's also spent a lot of money. She has spent way more money recently than a lot of other people. She's already spent a million dollars of that, which is kind of a huge sum. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see, though, to what degree does she also now start perhaps trying to give that money to other people and aid them? and build that up and build that support, because if she doesn't do that, she's going to be less protected in the future. Amy Stagerwald gets the last word on this segment of the show. Uh, We'll be back in a minute. I know Andrea Gillespie wants to weigh in on this, and we'll give her a chance after the... Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Messages.
Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Andre Gillespie, before we move on, I know you wanted to uh, make a, a comment about this, you know, where, where, where do people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are today in terms of communication as opposed to legislation. Well, it's, it was also more fundraising than anything else. A potential weakness for okay. Representative Green is the fact that I was just I just started perusing through her FEC reports to see where her donations were coming from from donors. So I got about 20 percent of the way kind of in. And one of the things that I'm noticing is hardly anybody from Georgia is giving her money. So she has certainly built oh. a national profile, but this doesn't actually contribute to her homestyle. Not that she's not doing events in her district, but if somebody wanted to run against her to say that basically she doesn't represent North Georgia. She's using this platform to build a national profile for herself, right? There is a way for a Republican to challenge her from within. Um, it wouldn't quite be the same, but it's not wouldn't be very, very different from what AOC did against Michael Crowley in New York, basically saying he's not from here. He doesn't represent you. He doesn't care about the same stuff that you do, but I do type of situation. So while I don't begrudge anybody raising money from wherever they can get it legally, right, that is something that I've also seen used against many candidates. Oh, man, I love that remark. That's a really interesting observation. Thank you for that. Jim Galloway, let's talk about the Cook Report. Uh, which uh, released a study of uh, voting trends in the 2020 election. Uh, they compared the 2020 presidential race and all of the down-ballot races from there to the 2016 presidential race and down-ballot races. And just, uh, and I'll turn it over to you after I give a couple of the results. The 6th District, Lucy McBath's district, uh, had the biggest swing from Republican to Democratic of any congressional district in the country between 2016 and 2020. We knew there had been a swing, but the fact that it's the biggest in the country is interesting. Um, districts represented by Barry Loudermilk, Jody Heiss, and Drew Ferguson, of course, all Republicans, although they won, there were leftward swings, according to the Cook Report, in those districts. Who knows if that means there's trouble down the road. Um, and of course, redistricting is going to happen later this year anyway. But on the other side of it, uh, Democrat Sanford Bishop uh, won re-election, but um, that district swung to the right a little bit compared to uh, what it had been in 2016. And Carolyn Bordeaux flipped the 7th district, but it too had a slight two-point swing uh, to the right meaning it performed better than a Republicans nationwide as a whole. So what do you make of all that, Jim? I think it's very, very important in terms of the fact, as you mentioned, that we have a redistricting uh, session coming up with the state legislature where they will re redraw, redraw uh, a, a, a whole lot of Georgia political boundaries. The most important boundaries, of course, are the 14th, uh, 14 congressional districts. Uh, and and the fact that 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 right now one of the big one of the big questions facing Republicans is who can they save with by redrawing re these lines? Do they try to reclaim the seventh district, uh, which is kind of on the on the on the noon noon uh, on the noon uh, face of a clock, just north of north of uh, north of the perimeter, or do they try to save the six, reclaim the six? And these numbers would would suggest that the the sixth may now be out of reach. 
and they may have to may have to content themselves with trying to to, to redraw the seventh district to make it more Republican friendly. This also brings us back to to, to Marjorie Taylor Greene, and 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 her twenty eight plus district uh, that 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 was mentioned earlier, because Barry Loudermilk in this is the thirteenth district or the eleventh district. Uh, oh, I get those eleventh. Okay, and Barry Loudermilk in the eleventh district. I mean, his he he's 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 a Republican. He still has control over that district, but his margin is shrinking because of Cobb County. Uh, he needs more Republican voters. The logical place to draw them from is from the 14th, is from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, so, so there's going to be a lot of horse trading. A lot of people are going to be uh, 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 fighting over a, a, a very limited slice of pie. Amy, our, our, I don't know quite – I apologize if I'm not phrasing this uh, as the best way possible. But are Republicans going to start running out of voters uh, to be able to dis- create districts like they want to in North Georgia? Yes. If they do not expand, <laughs> right, who it is that they are appealing to, yes, right? And part of that is because people are moving out of those regions, right? We are seeing movement continually sort of into the cities, into the suburbs and exurbs, right? These sort of districts on sort of up in, in the borders there are, um, growing right there, growing increasingly Republican because of people moving out, but they're also shrinking as to the numbers who have, of voters who are there. And so that means that there is sort of less wiggle room to be able to kind of expand their reach. And you do also get into the point that you can't draw any more completely insane looking districts, right? That's one of the things that we've tried to sort of move away from is drawing these ones that, you know, the, the gerrymandered, right? The, the, the Salamander District, and so bringing that apart. Um, you know, another place where we should probably pay attention to, just put on people's radars, is the second district, right? That's Stanford Bishop, right? He has been in office for quite a long time, but that one is, um, you know, sort of only D plus four, uh, and he's surrounded by, uh, you know, the 10th, uh, the eight, some other areas where there's a lot more that are coming into it. But yes, I mean, this really is the issue is that as more and more people are moving into the city, um, as industry is coming and we are seeing people uh, also relocating to Georgia. And so that is changing uh, who is living in sort of a lot of these areas and what those expansions mean. The Georgia Republican Party is starting, I think, to run out of voters and back to the points that sort of Andra and Jim and Karen have been bringing up that they are potentially in danger of not getting new voters when they need them if they don't expand their reach. Karen? So I was just going to say, so Amy's highlighted a lot of important points about the voters, but when we look at drawing districts, this is geography, and the Democrats Mm -hmm. are very centered geographically into suburbs and urban centers, and so that's where voters are. So when you look at moving the district lines, you're playing with geography, and so voters have self-sorted where they're living. And so not always the redistricting or gerrymandering is affecting our polarization and what we're seeing. It's really where the voters are located. And so Mm -hmm. tapping into them. And I think, you know, Amy's right when she mentions like Sanford Bishop's district, that that will be one to look at. But that's also been drawn as a majority minority district. Mm -hmm. 
And so as the Republican Party looks at their district, we don't have free clearance of the Voting Rights Act, but they're going to be paying attention to the districts that they have and in what potentially could be a Section 2 violation. They have a lot of parameters that they're looking at. And I think they will have to think about not only the 6th District, the 7th District, 11th District of Barry Loudermilk, but you're going to have to think about those voters in South Georgia. And you're looking at the 9th District in the Mountain, which is the most Republican area. And how are you going to start making districts that make sense? I also think, last point here, Republicans know what happened to the Democrats in 2000. They challenged those 2001 maps. They probably don't want to get caught in a mess again like the Democrats did. So they will play carefully, which is why redistricting is very political. Yeah, it's going to be really a fascinating process to watch when it finally happens. Galloway, we've mentioned on the show before, one of the things, though, that's uh, creating some interesting issues, problems, is that because the Census Bureau, thanks to the pandemic, has not been able to report out the census data that's used for reapportionment on the, uh, the schedule it was supposed to do it, it's frozen a lot of people in terms of thinking about whether they want to run as challengers uh, in, in congressional races because they don't know what the districts are going to look like. And the state legislature will be acting on this probably much later than usual. And yeah, you you have to think about, you have to wonder what uh, people like Buddy Carter, uh, the congressman from, 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 from uh, the Savannah area is thinking right now. I mean, we've, we've, we've got reports that he's thinking about uh, uh, challenging Raphael Warnock uh, for, for, for the U S Senate seat. Uh, it's, his seat has been a relatively safe one, but you wonder you, you got to wonder if 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 he feels if he feels vulnerable if he might lose a little bit of uh, of of, of uh, a few few more Republican voters than he's comfortable with uh, this summer and has decided to take the gamble to run statewide. Andre, jump in. Um. So. You know, I, I actually was hoping we could get to talking about the gubernatorial race. But, you know, one of the things... Well, that go I ahead. Say, you want to say something about it? <laughs> I, you know, I just find it really interesting uh, to talk to look at uh, Vernon, uh, Vernon Jones's sort of announcement. He's hoping to get uh, he's hoping to get a Trump endorsement that would clear the field. I'm not quite sure that he would get that. And if I were any Republican trying to wait to sort of like, you know, get rewarded for having kissed the ring from Donald Trump, I would just remember that everybody did it. So therefore, Donald Trump is the one that's holding all the cards. And especially for somebody who is a new convert to the party, I'm not sure that he is necessarily the right one. I think he's banking on Trump thinking that putting a black candidate against Stacey Abrams is a strategic move. But I I think that this is pretty risky. But to get back to Buddy Carter, you know, even if Carter's district, new district, loses seats, it's like it's still probably a safe Republican district. So this seems really risky to me. I love the fact that all of you on this show today can talk about 14 more things than we actually have time for. But I'm glad you got that in about Vernon and uh, Jones, because it is going to be fascinating out there to watch how this plays out, especially since we keep hearing Trump wants Herschel Walker to jump into the race. So we'll just uh, see how all that plays out. We are out of time. Uh, for today's Political Rewind, Amy Steigerwald, Andre Gillespie, Karen Owen, Jim Galloway, thanks for being here. We'll be back again tomorrow. 
I'm Bill Nygut. Remember, take care, stay healthy. Of course, wear your mask. Pull it above your nose, for goodness sake. Go get a flu, I mean a coronavirus vaccine. See you all tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.